What a good what a good conversation today. That was great. Orly Lobel. Oh, I wish From I were the, the listeners. University of San Diego. I wish I were the listeners right now. Yeah. Her book, Talent Wants to Be Free. We talk about yeah. that. We talk about our new paper uh, forthcoming in the Texas Law Review called uh, yeah. The New Cognitive Property. I thought the conversation gathered steam as it went along, too. It was great. They often do. You know, they yeah. often start good, but then be, get even stronger. Because you got to set and some more... things up. And, right. And you're always joining a conversation in the middle. And so there's some things you don't quite know. And then, right. but eventually you're really. You, so happily, this, like so many of them, it starts good and gets better and better. That's right. That's right. Awesome. I, I think so. I think so. It was terrific. Um, so I would like to say, topics. you know what I would like to say, Joe? Oh, what would you like to say? I would like to say that this is a huge week for oral argument. How so? Because I would like to say. <laughs> oh, I have a feeling you're about to tell me something you can't say. I would like to say that we've gotten our first download from the state of North Dakota. Oh, but we haven't. And, and I actually thought it would happen this week. Oh, um, those boogers. I don't think well, they've got the internet. Because <laughs> if they had it, someone would have told them. I, I, I have a student this term who has family in North Dakota. And I was assured that we might get a, I wasn't assured, but it was, it was suggested to me. We might get a download this week from North Dakota. Mm. Now here's another wrinkle though. Do we have an overpromise, it, under deliver no, problem in front of us I right think now? What could be happening is that all of North Dakota's internet traffic is routed through South Dakota. <laughs> <laughs> Or, or so our analytics aren't picking up the fact that this this would be a cruel irony if we had more North Dakota listeners than South Dakota listeners, exactly. but they were being wrongly maligned by these inferior analytics. <laughs> and Basically, I, I'm looking at who to be angry at. Yeah, I, who knows? Who knows? <laughs> There's no because if I can't identify anyone else, you know who I'm going to use it on. Oh, you. oh yeah. So this is a problem that um, I feel bad. listeners that that Joe is angry with me about something would be nothing new. That's <laughs> <laughs> so, so sad, it's, and yet it never stops. Me. Oh, it doesn't. It doesn't. Yeah. Um, I found out though in the course of trying to get to the bottom of what I'm now calling the North Dakota fiasco mm. uh, that North Dakota has the most fascinating official exhibit. I say it's official because this was an exhibit. And we'll link it up on the webpage. It's got a Facebook site. I had, I had a, a, let's just say someone familiar with the story, mm. uh, share some pictures with me from this site. Mm. Um, and this is in the city of Fargo, of course, famous for the movie Fargo. Yes. Uh, a brilliant film. Itself famous for a certain scene involving a wood chipper. <laughs> <laughs> That's a bit of a spoiler, honestly. Well, the, 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 the wood chipper scene I'm not saying you're guilty of spoiling. I'm saying the wood chipper scene, if you've never seen Fargo, getting to that scene fresh and the jolt of of surprise and shock right. um, is kind of fun. That's part of the fun of that movie. Well, see, that's just spoiled it more because all I said is a wood chipper and it's, who knows, maybe it's, maybe they're actually chipping wood and you don't know so what they're once doing. once again, I've made a bad problem worse. That is, that's also <laughs> not surprising to listeners. <laughs> <laughs> well, what what will be surprising to listeners, at least if they are at all like me, is that in the, I think it's the Fargo Convention, the Fargo-Moorhead, it's a twin city there. Mm. Fargo-Moorhead, apparently. Mm-hmm. It's a, a multiplex. Yes. Uh, like your Dallas-Fort Worths. For example. Right. Or your Minneapolis-St. Paul, for or, example. Right. Or or your College Station Bryans. Or even if you're transnational, you could have your El Paso Juarez. Right. Right. Your U.S. Canada's. Yeah. Right. Uh, they've got a they've got a convention center there mm. at which one of the feature attractions has been. How many times in a decade do you think they have a convention there? 
Uh, twice. I would like to think that we're going to have one up Me, there. This is the the oh. oral argument meetup is going to happen right there in that convention center. Ooh, nice. We're going to record an episode and hopefully make use of this exhibit. And now, guess, what will I encounter when I get to that exhibit? Well, this is what I can tell from the pictures. You will find a wood chipper. I am okay, not going to get in and, this wood chipper. Now, if you've not seen Fargo, this is a this is a spoiler. I'm going to have to spoil it in order to tell you what you do with right. this wood chipper. Can I can I be our spoiler horn? That's the that's, spoiler horn. No, that's that's the tone that tells our listeners that important legal related information is about to be transmitted. <laughs> <laughs> this is this is a, a callback to last week's episode. Yes. Uh, anywho, um, so you find <laughs> you get to this you get to this wood chipper and you I I don't know if they've got I I couldn't tell here whether they have a whole like bucket full of fake legs that you can pick from or if there's one in there and you just pose with it. Mm. Um, but you and your friends can pose pushing a, a, I presume they're fake. Joe, I don't know. Right. I, maybe they're we're not. We're not there and we're not there in person. We're looking at pictures. I presume you take a fake leg, you can push it down, pose, and you even have these little hats, these little far, you know, what do they call oh, those hats? The yeah, the ear flap hat. hats. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You can put that on, put your hand down on a leg, which is going down into a wood chipper and pose and get pictures taken. And they've wow. got these up all over this Facebook page wow. for this thing. Does it? S- I've never heard of a does public s- exhibit like this before. Does it spray? Um, <laughs> not to my knowledge. Red colored water <laughs> while to, you're, because we, you know, they have, what, you could, what you could do is you could take those, um, you know, those paintball gun type mm-hmm. things with the paintballs. Yeah. Cause that paintball stuff, it's kind of thick and, you know, you can make a nice paintball spray type. Right. Put a little compressor in there and have little red spray yeah, coming out. But this is North Dakota. The um, if you were to do that, you know, push a real leg into a wood chipper, it wouldn't come out. The blood wouldn't come out in liquid form. <laughs> Why? <laughs> it's Fargo, North Dakota. Because it's, it's cold. Everything is yeah. The water up there is basically a rock. It's so a what kind you need of rock. Is you need one of those ice, uh, like you need a snow cone maker, so that it shoots out the snow cone. <laughs> oh my. Like red snow cone. Oh, this is. I thought That's last week nice. was. I thought last week was our worst start ever to an episode. And <laughs> Wait, what do you mean? This is. These are these ideas. Which red, we're giving them for free, by the way. Somehow we we started this. I won't say as a serious law podcast because I don't think we ever attained that. Nor did we ever aspire toward that. Yeah, good point. But wherever we thought we were going, I don't think it involved talking about the leg in the wood chipper exhibit and yes. using snow cones to. Sp- out red right. solid blood anyway yeah, the, yeah. if you had asked me a year ago how long i thought it would take us to get to the show title shooting red snow cone <laughs> i would have predicted more than a year <laughs> yeah how, how wrong i was <laughs> i got a couple other bits of follow-up okay so, so thanks to um to this uh listener mc last name withheld um it's flop house <laughs> style uh a couple more so um and I'll put this up in the show notes too. This is in reference to our uh, our discussion last week about having an oral argument tour and how we would have a very um, we would have a very extensive and detailed rider. I think they're called riders. Oh yes, that yes. would you know specify this all the, the things backstage that, agreement. Yeah, the back and the hotel, all the things that we would need in our hotel room. This we would have an extensive list of. Please I won't call them demands, right. but you know requests. things that request things yeah. that would make it easier to do the tour. Yeah. Please address the parrot. Right. <laughs> So last time we, we referred to Richard Stallman's and linked up uh, Richard Stallman's famous rider. Well, uh, listener Hunt 
famous for uh, his appearance on the show in Indeed. our serial episode. Yes. For, uh, you know, he, happily he tweets for us. at us. He tweets at us. By the way, we're at Oral Argument. Mm-hmm. All one word, no funny business. At Oral Argument on Twitter. Yeah. It's a great way to communicate with us. And, yeah, send and, us a tweet. Yeah. Um, if you don't want to do that, by the way, Oral Argument Podcast at gmail.com. Hashtag shooting red snow cone. That's a, that's a Twitter thing. Now, hold on. Let me get back to the email thing. Mm-hmm. Oral Argument Podcast at gmail.com. All one word, no funny business. Right, Joe? Yes. Okay. Twitter at Oral Argument. And we're oral argument, oral argument on Facebook too. Um, uh, but so anyway, uh, listener hunt tweets at us. Here's some ideas for your appearance contract writer. And it's a smoking gun article, you know, the smoking gun, gun.com smoking gun website. Yeah. 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 And it has, uh, linked up on there, the writers for a whole bunch of rock bands. <gasps> and, and actually that's a, maybe a, a call forward to the rock band thing we're going to talk about at the we end of the show. We need an oral argument intern to comb through those agreements to come up with a best practices or most <laughs> desirable clauses. <Right. laughs> if you want to be the oral argument intern who goes through the backstage writer agreements, please contact us at oral argument yeah. and volunteer for that. Yeah. That sounds great. That's some that's some high class experience there. Now, now I may use this image at a, at a point in the future, but we also got a, a, a tweet from uh, listener David, longtime listener David, mm. wonderful guy, um, who who tweeted at us a picture, I presume of his own legs, <laughs> um, being smashed by a by a uh, 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 um, a monster. He said, "Well, his words are uh, monsters," which I in pre- an exclamation point. This is someone who's in a seat in an airplane in front of him oh. who has smashed his knees. I mean, it just looks oh. – there looks to be no room there. I, I can't even see – I don't know if he still has kneecaps, to tell you the truth, after looking at this picture. The best way for our listeners to see this picture now is to go to uh, – you know, search for us on Twitter and then look at our mentions. Mm-hmm. Go to our mentions. You'll see listener David's um, – really, it's almost a not safe for work picture Yikes. because of the violence done to his kneecaps. Oh. Um, so uh, – uh, best wishes to listener David and, and, and his a recovery. Speedy, speedy recovery. Yeah, yeah. from his yeah. knee replacement surgeries. <laughs> that's uh, I, I. That's I think that's all the feedback that I had. I did want to say one other thing to listeners, and because I we talked about this a little bit last time, but I did not include it in the show. Oh, because it took us a while to get going last time. Uh, um, we've grown a lot since we first came on the uh, first came on the airwaves. Mm. Since we first started being transmitted, I am a little heavier. Either. I wouldn't say we've grown a lot. Well, I'm a little listen, heavier. Our, our listenership has grown. Oh, well, our listenership. Uh, and that's very gratifying. And uh, I think we could grow more. And it's not that we want to be like, you know, we don't want to be of this necessarily of the size. That would Can be, like, I say what I think viable. we want? I what, think we want for everyone who would love listening to us to know about us so that they can listen. So that they can find us. Right. And I also have to say, you know, we do, Joe, have, um, uh, sorry for mentioning your name again. I know that bothers you. I'm, try, I'm going to try not to do that. I'm you did much better this week by just talking less overall. Therefore, you had less occasion to use my name. We had a guest. You think I did better by talking less overall, just period? No. Just <laughs> period that made the show better. By I using my name less. Okay. Uh, um, uh, what was I going to say? What, um, um, In addition to just people who would love us being able to find us to right, listen to us. Right. You may not know this, um, but we have... Even though we don't have the listenership of, say, your serials, your This American Life's, it's Life's because it's the show, right? Um, we have the most handsome audience. Oh. And the most thoughtful. So, you know, if you're, if you're looking for someone to advertise to, if you're looking for a show to advertise on, maybe it's your This American Life or your serial, right? right? 
but if you are say looking for someone to marry I would look <laughs> I would look among our audience. You're going to have less searching to do. That's all I'm saying. Joe. Yeah, okay. Lower search costs is good. Um but uh like he, here's, so here's what we need people to do though to 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 grow the show a little bit more and help people who would love the show find it. That's all we want. People yes. who would love the show to know about. It. Yes. Uh, suggest it to people. If you like the show, tell other people that you like the show. That always helps. You know, tweet us. Twitter is really what drives traffic, I think more than Facebook or anything else. Really? But, but you can post you can like our things on Facebook and 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 post stuff about the shows. That'd be great. But let other people know who you think would like the show. Uh, that you like the show. And here's maybe one of the bigger things you can do. iTunes. And it seems crazy. Yeah. You got to rate us on iTunes. If you rate us five stars on iTunes, now if you're not going to rate us five stars, get in touch with us first. Yeah. Let us know why. Yeah. Let us know why. And then, then, then we, we can chat. We'll talk we, about we it. We can chat about it. Yeah. yeah. Uh, but you don't have to, here's the thing. You don't have to leave a review. You don't have to do anything else. All you have to do is hit the five stars and it's done. You don't, you don't have to do anything else. And that helps other people learn about it and find it. I think it pushes us up in the queue and it makes it easier for people to find the right. show. Yeah. So yeah. it's a great way to honestly do what you want as a listener, which is to help other people who would enjoy it as much as you do find it. Yeah. Yeah. That's, now, that's what, all the self-promotion we're going to do for yeah. right now, right? Yep. The, any other self-promotion you wanted nope. to do? No. Nope. It's not self-promotion. It's good world promotion. <laughs> we're trying to make the world better here, people. <laughs> not now, about us. Uh, one other, I guess one other important, uh, item, um, if you are a rival podcast out there, don't even think about trying to get in touch with Joe, uh, cause he's, I'm not letting him leave. Uh, <laughs> so <laughs> Hi, there he is. Ap- apropos of our discussion, I'm just saying, yes. you know, I, whatever public policy I'm committed to about poaching employees and, 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 and the like, when it comes to this show, don't go after Joe. Mm. I'm pretty sure that's some kind of, uh, that's a rhyme. When it comes to the show, don't poach Joe. (laughs) (laughs) Wow. Yeah. So if you want to, if you want a t-shirt that says that, maybe we can make that happen eventually. Also, uh, oh, one last thing. Oh my God. And then we're going to get to our guest. If you're local and you see, uh, and you see Joe around, tell him how much you like the show. Ugh. I think, I think Joe needs fans. (sighs) Okay. You're, I mean, you're the beating heart of the show, and I think people should come up and, and you know, uh, pat you on the back and let you know. That's no, all I'm saying. No. They do not need to touch me. <laughs> <laughs> give, I want to be very clear about that. If you see him, just give him a big old bear hug and let him know how much he's enriched your, <laughs> how much he's enriched your life. <laughs> this is not okay. <laughs> oh, lordy, lordy, Joe. I think it's time get for on our, with it? I think it's time for our guest. Nothing else, huh? Yeah. They Boom. should get to hear what we got to do. Three, two, one, go. Hey, Orly. Hi, Christian. How are you? I'm good. You know, what a week. <laughs> <laughs> I, Orly, you know, Orly is, do they have a, like a phrase for like a, like a big money guest, like a big money signing? You know what I mean? I do know what you mean. Like, uh, um, you know, like a, like a, like a, I don't know, like a, like a money guest or a, uh, it's a big get, a big get. Is We've that what it is? We've got a big get. Yeah. Yeah. Orly, you're a big fish. That's what we're trying to say. I think to, to, <laughs> to mix some, to mix a bunch of metaphors here, um, uh, but, but you're in a nice velvety net and not on a hook. <laughs> you don't want someone to feel like you just put a hook through their cheek. And this is, and this is twice in, well, now this is 2015, but, but you were at UGA, uh, uh, our law school last year to present um, uh, from your book, or was it the year before? I, I these it run was, together. Yeah, it was last spring. It wasn't that long ago. Oh, it's about a year I, ago. Yeah, 
Yeah, yeah. I very much enjoyed it. Yeah, and, and I imagine that with the now, have you been sent on some kind of book tour? Do you have to? Are are you promoting this thing outside of um, uh, the the stuffy walls of academia? I've been having fun. I've been traveling a lot, uh, possibly a little too much. Uh, so just this past semester, I was in Tokyo, and then a I've month after that, I was in. Uh, Seoul, uh, in Korea, uh, I, I, that was really fun because I was invited to give a talk about the book at Samsung. And then it, it just coincided with the publication of Talent Wants to be Free in Korean. So that was really fun to wow. meet with my Korean publisher and then uh, give a few talks at Seoul National University and at Samsung. It was quite an experience. Yeah, I, saw, I actually followed that on, on Facebook and saw your pictures. And was really, I've never been to Korea. H- had you been before? No, I had been three times to Japan and a few times to, to China and Taiwan. But this was my first Korean trip. Is it? No, I've been to China. I've not been to Japan. Um, what's the, I mean, does it, I don't know, does it feel, is there is there a distinctive Korean feel in Seoul? Is there, I mean, I'm sure there is, it's a different culture, but you know, what's it like? <laughs> Korea is fascinating. It's it's well. First of all, comparing Japan to China, to China, I think they're in some ways polar opposites. You know, Chinese uh, culture is um, quite still developing. It uh, felt um, like they were still very much figuring out how to talk to the West and who they were and. The Japanese, it's ultra modern, and uh, they um, almost became too Western in some ways. So, like the when I, I've been to Japan now several times for conferences at University of Tokyo and other places, and the their big galas instead of serving Japanese food, they have like French galas, <laughs> <laughs> and that's always disappointing. I want to, you know, I come right. and I want to have some good sushi and. Um, but, but it's, it's just, you know, so super technologically advanced and, um, they, uh, they hold everything in, in English, no simultaneous translations. Um, Korea, I think it would be in between the two, but also very distinct because they're, so they're much smaller and they feel that pressure of being, uh, you know, a small country, amongst uh, countries that have in a lot of time, a lot of times been, you know, uh, very unkind to them. Uh, and yeah. that's an understatement. So they, um, they're kind of struggling with, you know, where, what's their place. Um, and in some ways I felt like Korea had uh, a lot of similarities with Israel. Um, so that, you know, I'm, I'm from Israel and, mm-hmm. and you know, a small country, Surrounded by uh, oftentimes enemies, been through a lot of wars, through occupation, and um, and, kind, and kind of a simmering conflict, ongoing conflict. I take it right, right, and and they feel in Korea. And this is also true in Israel that their advantage is not you know some natural resources or being you know a big empire, but rather their human capital, really like the, you know, the people themselves, the, the talent that they have, the education, their, their, 
they're a country of overachievers. They, you know, everybody I met there um, had a PhD and was um, working on all kinds of studies. And they're, they're, um, I, I loved meeting all of them there. They were really um, very hospitable and, and generous. Well, it'd be interesting, and I bring it up now, but hopefully we can return to it after we kind of outline some of the stuff you've done in your book and in uh, this new piece, the new cognitive property um, piece, which I found really interesting. Um, because so much about, uh, and, and we'll get into exactly what it's about. I know our listeners don't know yet, uh, unless they've peeked ahead at the show notes, but, uh, um, uh, that it's, um, the, the relation between employer and employee and what kinds of obligations flow between them seems to me very culturally bound and, and driven. And, and so people's expectations, I would imagine, uh, for the duties an employee owes during employment and after employment are just really, you know, really different in, in, in different countries, including maybe between Asian countries, you know, much less between, say, the United States and 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 China or the United States and Japan. Um, at least that's the intuition I have. But uh, do you want to say anything about that before we kind of get into the to the meat of your project? Yeah, well, I mean, it's hugely important, the culture, the, the corporate ethos and uh, the expectations of um, the career cycle in, in different countries. We, what we're seeing is we have these ideas of the differences between all of these countries, but we're seeing more and more uh, this Americanization of, of all of these different countries of, of shifting to, um, uh, you know, a more um, high mobility, less job security model in all of these countries. So um, it actually, a lot of the invitations I've been getting to, to some of uh, the Asian countries have been related to these questions of, you know, what do we do now that we're shifting our employment model and, and we're moving to different kinds of industries and different kinds of relationships. It was interesting because Orly mentions that, that part of American is uh, a perception of Americanization of, of workplace and and the law is uh increased mobility but but the the certainly the new cognitive uh property paper suggests that underneath that um surface layer of rhetoric about increased mobility is an effort to decrease employee mobility right it's to lock people in and lock them down so there's an odd sort of tension-filled set of concepts here yeah, and just to set this up the the, the core problem that that I think we're going to talk about, but we're going to let Orle drive this wherever she wants to take it. But is uh, um, uh, this idea, if you're employed by a company and you want to leave, um, like basically what can you take with you? Um, and there are many doctrines which uh, um, in, in the law, which are used in different ways. And, and you do a nice job in this piece of kind of showing how they all work together to be maybe more than the sum of their parts to prevent employees not from taking physical objects with them that belong to the employer, you know, t taking computers off the desk or cameras or, or experiments or something else, but taking the knowledge and know-how that they've acquired. And so the bluntest of these instruments that you've written about is the uh, covenant not to compete, uh, which basically says you don't you agree not to work for a competitor within a certain amount of time. These are, of course, famously illegal in California and uh, legal in many other places. And where they are legal, they have been interpreted or are written so as to be uh, confined to kind of reasonable geographic scope and reasonable temporal scope. So, you know, if you, and, and you point out in the piece that it's gone beyond traditional, what you might think of as knowledge workers or computer engineers or scientists to 
yoga instructors and others, right, to uh, prevent them from. And then there are these other doctrines which, which prevent you from taking the the knowledge that you've acquired and using it, even if you can be hired by another company. I don't know if that's the right kind of high level description of your overall project. So maybe you want to give another one, Orly, or or an amendment to that, or what? Well, that one was pretty perfect. Uh, it's a, it's a great uh, way to put it and and to introduce some of the themes of the article it, it really is I liked how you said um, that it's it's a lot of different developments in the law at intersections of intellectual property law employment law antitrust law that all operate together and I'm telling a story of how we should think of them as a body of law or, or a field um, of human capital uh, which which has kind of gone under the radar uh, because this is a series of, of doctrines, regulations, and, and contractual agreements that, you know, we, we don't really look at in a very sustained way or, or haven't been, um, and, and, I, and I hope we will. But, of course, traditional property doctrine is, is, is a bunch of different doctrines scattered across the law, which have kind of been, um, you might say artificially or not, but, but accumulated into this thing we call property. I mean, trespass law, nuisance law, uh, the law of transfers, mortgages, adverse possession, you know, it's a bunch of landlord tenant law, a bunch of different doctrines, which together we say, oh, yeah, that defines our modern property system. But uh, uh, and maybe they have developed with in reference to one another, but they kind of add up to this thing that we think of as as the law of real and, and personal property. And And you're kind of saying we could do the same thing with the law of the mind, right? <laughs> the ownership of the mind. What does it mean to uh, to, to be able to use your cognitive capacities uh, to to deliver value into the economy? And there's you're saying there is an overall overarching system of regulation of, of that uh, of that thing, right? That's exactly right. And and to to say a little bit more about the this uh, metaphor of property, I think you're exactly right that um, we've had uh, developments of you know dispersed rules uh, about boundaries and and um, agreements and and how we we think about uh, you know our tangible assets throughout history we've had a much longer history of a concept of property but it has developed as you know many different um, ideas and we in some ways of course we, we recognize in legal theory that property is is just a bundle of rights and you know we have these Huffeldian uh, ideas of you know rights and duties, uh, and and how do we you know deconstruct the the whole concept? But in in other ways, we we completely buy into the idea that there's something very natural about the concept of property. I just kind of we we're almost born with it, you know that uh, I own it, so I own it, so I you know I have all these controls over it. And in in the article in the new cognitive property. Um, there's a few kind of twists on that. Um, first of all, of course, um, I call it the new cognitive property, and, and uh, it's it's an allusion to um, the this idea of the new property um, article that has affected a lot of thinking about you know what are these different rights that we have in in society, public private divides that you know really affect. Um, are just distributional questions, um, and and over time these have changed. And maybe in the 20th century, we've uh, understood that it's not just you know real property houses, but whatever kinds of administrative welfare, social rights we have. That was kind of the message of the new 
property um, theories, the realists, and and then now 21st century. Um, I'm I'm trying to point out exactly as you say that um, if we we understand um, the that uh, some of the greatest values in competitive markets come from our intangible assets, uh, you know, our skills, our, the, the products, the empires of the mind. Um, we have to look more closely at, you know, how do we unpack them? How do we uh, draw lines and, and, and draw kind of the box up whatever it is that, that we produce uh, from, from those capacities? So yeah, as, as, as so as the new property takes us from a regime where what's important is to you know to, for societies to like protect people's like security and what they have so they can have a, a a nice clean platform for producing more stuff and 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 returning more good things to the community and it's and it was no longer enough just to protect people's ownership of arable land right it was uh, important to protect all kinds of complex relationships within society that were the basis of the security that allows you know and that that may involve certain kinds of government entitlements it may involve certain kinds of intellectual products and it may involve um, certain kind of regulatory protections so that I feel stable in my life and can can work and um, and so similarly uh, you're looking at kind of the um, the inputs into production that have changed uh, with you know the information age right I mean that people it's it's our mental inputs which are so much more important now than a strong back uh, for many many exactly. jobs right and so I was struck you know what one note I wrote down when I was going through the piece was um, because uh, again, maybe we can separate these out and be more methodical with it. But but a, one set of examples that you cite are are workers who are basically do things in their own time, or they come up with an invention on their own, and they're prevented by contract because they've signed a contract with an employer promising that the employer basically owns everything they come up with during the period of employment, and sometimes even afterwards. Uh, uh, but um, and so they run like a buzzsaw, you know, into this contract problem. Um, and it makes them really different than, say, I don't know, a mechanical worker a long time ago had a set of skills, you know, whether you're a blacksmith or something else or uh, you work on a factory, you, you're good with tools. And then you, you go home in the evening and you have a hobby, which is working with tools in your garage and you produce some cool stuff and maybe you can sell that. Right. And and now because the products are of the mind, um, the claims of the employers seem to be much broader. Right, because who knows when you thought of it? You, know, you can't say that for sure. I made this thing in my garage on my own time. You know, who knows when? So the, you know, we can go through specific examples, and I, that would be better probably. Like the Mattel example, uh, where they came up with brats. Uh, the the Barbie worker came up with I forget the name um, with this new line of dolls. And you know, when did this person come up with this line of dolls? How do we know if it was on their own time? Can the contract claim everything, even stuff invented on the worker's own time? And that was a huge case, like billions of dollars at stake, if I remember. Um, yeah, 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 a whole, yeah, a, a whole product line, a whole uh, empire started by a competitor uh, that knocks Barbie off her pedestal, as uh, Judge <laughs> Kaczynski says uh, in in the case. Uh, they suddenly, you know, there there's something else out there, um, and Mattel. Only after they they face this fierce competition, which you know is what we want in in markets, you know, different kinds of products, they really only later in the game they realize um, through uh, these weird uh, set of events where um, 
MGA, the owner of Bratz, was being sued or, or was actually suing uh, a Hong Kong company for copyright infringement. So those attorneys in Hong Kong start digging into what what is this history of Bratz? Who created it? And they find the connection of a former designer of Mattel. And they uh, three years in, they call up. Um, the, the, the in-house counsel at Mattel and say, did you know that there's a, a former designer that actually drew up this, this product line that's now your fierce competitor? And that's how the whole litigation starts. And, and Mattel suddenly thinks it has, you know, a claim over the, that entire um, different line because, because of the contractual agreements with its employee. And what, what do you think is wrong with that? I mean, so what's wrong with a company like uh, like Google telling um, an employee, um, and you have examples of Google contracts in this article, Google telling an employee, like, look, if you come up with computer stuff while you work for us, um, we own that invention. Um, and and that's just part of the deal. And, and part of the salary of the employee is meant to, you know, part of what you're paying for from the employee is cool new ideas they come up with related to computers, right? And, you know, Google's famous, I would say years ago now, but um, at least originally for this, um, this extra day, was it one fifth time or 20% time where they could work on whatever they wanted, right? And so part of what Google was buying was like creative, talented individuals who would do things that were unexpected. And so why can't they strike that kind of bargain? At least maybe what are the harms with striking that kind of bargain from your perspective? Right. So this is, it's, it's exactly the, you know, the core of this question of how do you strike this bargain? And, and the, the impulse is, is understandable that, uh, you know, the Google example is the paradigmatic example of, yeah, we are really, what we're hiring for is your creativity and your playful mind. And so we're going to let you play. And, and that's the deal that we want, you know, all the products that, that come from it. Um, you know, we, we don't need your, um, just you know, technical or physical energies, but really we want your creative energies. Um, so, so here we have to start thinking about, you know, how do we draw the lines? It's, I never in the article say, you know, we, we can't have any of these contracts. We've always had doctrines about hire to invent. That's been the, the historical reality from in patent law that um, if you're hired to invent, if that's, if that's really what you were hired to do and that's what you're paid for then um the the company has ownership over the the ip that you produce um we have the same kind of doctrines in the copyright act uh on work for hire um but we're all in the business of line drawing and what uh i'm concerned about is this expansion of, of these kinds of contracts in, in multiple ways. So one way, and this is a, it, it goes back to the Mattel example, but it's also very much in the Google um, contracts that, that I, I got hold of and, you know, I managed to, to talk <laughs> to some engineers uh, there. And, and so I use... Is, is anybody going to go to jail for giving you these contracts, by the way? <laughs> well, they, these are people who were uh, offered jobs at Google and they, they came to me and, and said, look at this contract and I don't know if to sign it because... Um, and that actually gives you some indication of, of the problems. Um, one is... Um, you mentioned that sometimes it tries to go into the future and even after you leave, um, the contract will say anything that you uh, patent a year after you've, you're, all, you're already on your own, 
um, you have to assign back. We call those holdover clauses or trailer clauses. There's also, though, um, kind of back to the future uh, um, language that suggests that anything that you've already been working on for years, um, now that you were working for Google, um, you you come to, and, and we have a lot of case law on this that, that's emerging, that um, you that there's a claim over those ideas because now you're you're the you know you can't do anything with them even though you thought about them earlier before you joined google and and these are very much i talked to these uh google engineers and they're not you know the the typical vulnerable not sophisticated employees that we were usually concerned about their bargaining power. These are sophisticated actors, and still, it's really uh, kind of a non-negotiable. That 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 aspect of the contract was really not something that they felt that they could raise, and they tried to raise it, and and they really couldn't uh, change anything in that contract. So so some of these uh, employees were telling me, you know, we've been in in the gaming business or just gaming for for fun. For, for years, uh, you know, as college students, we have a lot of different um, video games that we thought about, ideas. And now anything that um, we might want to do during our, you know, weekends and nights, uh, you know, that free time that's really free, um, it too, uh, per the language of the contract, would be the property of Google. So so it's that kind of complete hold over your, your time uh, at any point and, you know, uh, before, after, and during your employment. The other piece of it that, uh, that I think is very concerning is that language that, um, so, you know, when, when it's a patent, we, as I said, we've always had these doctrines of hire to invent. So if it's something patentable and it's connected to the business of Google, and that's a part of the problem is that the business of Google is everything, right? Like, you know, the everything <laughs> yeah. store, right. like, like Amazon, right? So, so there's no area, there's no place for hobbies in that sense, you know, no separation between, um, you know, who you are as an employee and, and who you are as, as a creative person. Um, but, um, the the other part of it is that language that is very much uh, now becoming the standard, and it appeared in the Mattel contract. It appears in the Google contract that says anything that you improve, you design, you uh, uh, conceive of, whether patentable or non-patentable, whether copyrightable or non-copyrightable, we own. And yeah. I think that is very uh, illuminating. In, in understanding that gap between intellectual property and cognitive property that I'm trying to, to get to, um, where intellectual property, the whole business of intellectual property is drawing those lines between what are the, the kinds of information that are, as Thomas Jefferson said, worth the embarrassment of a patent. It's always an embarrassment to propertize information, right? It's always an yeah. embarrassment to, to fence knowledge because... Uh, knowledge in its you know, free form or it's in, in its natural form is something that flows. It's something that we want to share. We want to exchange. It's not like property in the sense that it's you know rivalry and exclusive. But we understand that there's something still that because of the our you know the incentive structure that we've um, we we understand uh, happens in in inventive processes. We want to allow some monopolization, some temporary monopolization of some 
information, but we're drawing very clear lines. So anything that's too abstract is not patentable, right? And that's yeah. we we have every year the Supreme Court and the Federal Secret and you know the, the courts are really trying to figure out those lines. It's they're, they're not easy to draw, but we are all convinced that they're very important to to get it right. Um, and pretty and much then, all convinced that we've got it's all screwed up. Like nobody. <laughs> <laughs> no, no, it's totally broken, right? I mean, uh, patent and copyright are, are in important senses totally, totally broken. And I mean, do you have a greater hope for aligning these? I mean, a lot of these are state contract doctrines. So it's not just a few federal statutes, which are horribly broken. It's uh, the laws of 50 states um, uh, that are cause. I mean, there are different kinds of harms here, right? There's the, the harm to the worker who no longer you know, it, it, well, there's the question, does the, does the contractor or other terms of employment impede the worker from engaging in hobbies that are, that would be life enriching? Or in fact, does the, most employees don't even think about these kinds of restrictions. And so they engage in hobbies anyway. And then there's the question of what happens if the employee wants to move somewhere else and what's the harm to that employee of not being able to move somewhere else or not being able to move with certain kinds of knowledge that has, or ideas that have been amassed. And then what's the harm to the broader community of, uh, uh, of business entities from not having that flow of uh, of that those knowledge flows and important knowledge spillovers that kind of keep uh, competition going, right? That that um, I, I don't I don't I don't know. I, I guess I'm saying I, I don't know if I'm more hopeful about about getting you know reining in cognitive property doctrines which have run amok than uh, than I am about uh, IP, which seems a simpler task, right? <laughs> right. So. I, on, on the question of what I'm, you know, what is it that I'm more concerned about the the individual employee that you know has uh, maybe less of incentives to 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 play during their free time and and uh, their you know problematic distributional effects on these line drawings, or on the greater you know it, from the greater good of uh, innovation policy more general, um, it's, I've certainly become more concerned uh, about the latter. So I, I, I'm a, an employment law scholar uh, and, you know, in addition to kind of regulatory theory and the intellectual property work I do, I very much am always in the world of thinking about employment relations. But actually in this context, I have become more and more convinced that um, it's more fruitful to think about economic growth, regional development, innovation policy more general, uh, more, more generally. And the reason for that is that um, what what is striking in looking at these developments is, as you say, there's there's great variation among states. Um, it's there's there's of course the cost of um, uncertainty and 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 you know many different jurisdictional um doctrines there it's 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 harder to navigate but there's also a very optimistic piece of it which is that we have this natural experiment in this field so unlike patent law and unlike copyright law we actually in the realm of trade secrets and in uh non-competes and non-disclosures and all of these other uh, expansions through contract and, and uh, state law, we, we have a natural experiment and we can start looking at what happens with regions that are uh, higher enforcement in expansion of non cognitive property and those that have had 
uh, a stronger um, sense that that we have to allow mobility and that we have to encourage knowledge flows. So from a public policy perspective, then it's it's an imperative in the short term would be preventing the national uniformity along any one of these particular models. It's a good thing right now that there are a lot of different states with a lot of different approaches that, that California, which is a very significant economy, might approach things one way, uh, the Northeast might approach it another way, the Southeast might approach it yet a third way. That's actually a good thing because it's generating information about the texture of the economy, including growth and other employment-related and, and consumer-related things, given that people approach this stuff in different ways, right? That's that's right to a certain extent. Um, I think that with some some of these developments, we we know enough at this point that we could say, you know, we've we've had this natural experiment since the inception inception of California. Actually, we've had uh, <laughs> yeah. California resisting non competes. Maybe it's time to learn some lessons and right. and um, and. It, but the, but, the, but the PepsiCo against Redmond case, uh, the uh, which is the expansion of threatened misappropriation, uh, that's 1995, right? So that's only about 20 years of a lot of other states sort of leaning harder in the other direction. And what, what's what's the threat of what, what's the expanded misappropriation there? So so it, it, the PepsiCo against Redmond case, and I hope I'm remembering roughly the year of it correct, but it's the idea that. Uh, you can use the Trade Secret Act not only to prevent actual misappropriation after it's occurred to remedy that, right. but you can prevent one person from leaving your firm and going to another firm. In this case, it was, you know, the Quaker Oats company owning one set of beverage brands and PepsiCo owning competing beverage brands and saying, we don't want this muckety muck in this beverage business to go and work at our competitor, right? So did they have a non-compete agreement? No, they did not. So it's, they, us, it's using a fear of, of trade secret misappropriation as basically a non-compete. In, mm-hmm. it, right, a de facto non-compete right. under the phrase threatened misappropriation. Now, there is a statutory hook in the Trade Secret Act, uh, and there is a uniform trade secret act that's been adopted in most states. So in that sense, the law is uniform, although it can be interpreted slightly differently in different states. And in that sense, it's not uniform. But there, there is there, there is a textual hook there that, that let the Seventh Circuit say, yeah, threatened misappropriation, that's a perfectly legitimate legal theory. And that kind of opened a floodgate in the in – the, other than California parts of the country to noodle with this idea of threatened misappropriation. Wow. Yeah. So that's only 20 years ago. In other words, well, so, so that's a good example. So so we, we call it the doctrine of inevitable disclosure and trade secrets. And only a dozen states has have adopted it. So uh, Illinois is one. Um, actually, Georgia is another. Um, a lot of states have rejected that doctrine. Of course, California has rejected it. Uh, it says, you know, we don't enforce non-competes, so we de- certainly don't enforce uh, ex post de facto non competes that were never bargained for, um, but but a lot of other states have uh, re- rejected that doctrine. Uh, so we ha- were at a place where we have a really nice mixed experiment, and there are these new studies. This is what's really fascinating in in this area right now that 
Um, not in law schools necessarily, but at the business schools, at econ departments, there's a lot of interest because innovation policy uh, is such an important field right now, such an important interdisciplinary area of study. Um, they've taken up these uh, the, these natural experiments and they look at multiple da data sets and they look, for example, at the va variation between the adoption and rejection of inevitable disclosure. And a new study shows that that too has had detrimental effects where states that have adopted inevitable disclosure have seen uh, a suppression in their employee mobility, particularly uh, less mobility with the, the people that are actually the most valuable, the ones that are, you know, the scientists, uh, the engineers that have the most human capital uh, in their mind, you know, in uh, in their skill set, um, they they're prevented from moving to where they they can most be beneficial for you know the next projects, the next ventures. Yeah. In addition to mobility, are there findings about um, startups? You know, that uh, having that basically the question is, does having that rule cause, and this is the answer you just gave, uh, fewer employees to move around and presumably employees moving around is, is more efficient and, and it, you would desire it um, to some extent. The models go both ways. But uh, um, but also, does it does it uh, retard the formation of new companies, uh, startups? And then more generally, I was I was going to ask a little bit earlier if you could, to the extent the um, that we know some of these things, could you give? Is it possible to give like a thumbnail sketch of of what the state of the art in terms of our knowledge is about, say, covenants not to compete and a few other things? Yeah, yeah. So um, I feel like maybe you're. Uh, as as though I planted some of these questions for you, but I'm not <laughs> sure if. Uh, but no. but I have I have a I have actually a, a full chapter in Talent Wants to Be Free about startups and entrepreneurship as a particular um, aspect of economic health and you know and, and and its significance to economic growth and and innovation and um, startups are. Uh, are, are harmed even more than just the general, you know, ability to to recruit and retain uh, employees in markets, because so so we have these studies on um, how it's not only that people move less when they're bound by all these human capital restrictions, but they their movement is patterned in in the sense that uh, if they would consider either becoming an entrepreneur and you know starting their own venture, and this is the dream of you know a lot of a lot of people uh, these days. A lot of our students, they really in Silicon Valley, it's it's almost become a problem that nobody wants to be an employee forever, right? Everybody right. wants to be their own person, the, you know, the, their the, their own boss, and and to start something new. Um, but that's been uh, incredibly. Uh, forceful and, and, and important to the development of Silicon Valley, you know, whole teams starting new ventures. Um, and, but, but when you're bound with, you know, all these uh, risks of litigation and, and restrictions, um, even when you do choose to move, uh, it's more likely that you'll move to another incumbent, to a big co competitor that's already existing and, and uh, promises to indemnify you in case of litigation. Mm. Uh, so so um, there's there's going to be less of these uh, new ventures and, and initiatives. Is, is there a clear finding on 
Massachusetts versus California say? I mean, it, Mass- California famous for never having uh, covenants not to compete um, or never allowing them. Massachusetts has always been the one that I think that's been held up that allows them. Am I right this about that? This is the Anne Saxenian study, right? That's- well, that's what I'm wondering if that's the – I just don't know the state of the art on this. Okay. Yeah, do you? Right. Sure. Yeah, so, so um, Annalise Saxenian and Ron Gilson and uh, already in uh, the 1990s, the, it was – um, hypothesized by by them and others that uh, we could actually take Massachusetts and California and draw these comparisons because they were um, equally positioned at some point to become the next Silicon Valley, right? That that place where everybody wants to uh, to flow. There's so much venture capitalism. There's uh, you know everybody around the world wants to emulate. Um, so they were equally situated in in the sense of having great cities around them, having uh, great universities, research institutions, uh, already a lot of good uh, high-tech companies. And then, you know, while uh, Silicon Valley becomes Silicon Valley, Route 128 stagnates. Uh, it's, it's, it's not that they're... You know, disappears. There's still a high tech hub there, but it uh, doesn't grow as fast. And and there's you know, it kind of uh, vertically integrates rather than uh, a lot of these horizontal agglomeration economies um, that that we hope for. And so that was all the hypotheses in in the um, in, in, even like a decade ago. And and there were there were nice ethnographies that Saxenian. Uh, show that there's an ethos that beyond just what the law um, is in in these different places where there's non-enforcement and non-competes and and maybe a narrower definition of what trade secrets are and how to enforce them in California as compared to Massachusetts. There's also an ethos uh, of openness in the region of Silicon Valley that didn't exist in, in Boston, where um, there was an understanding that even things that you could litigate, you would just not really pursue them in Silicon Valley because they're, it's, it's just understood that whole teams will move and, and in the long run, everybody benefits from, from having these um, very rapid um, you know, turnover and, and competition and, and, and that's just the nature of the, the business there. So, Reputational so, constraints. Uh, I want to I want to try to come at this from the completely other end. So because it seems to me that one of the public policy challenges here is uh, that that you've identified it so beautifully is that the the logic of wanting more of these kinds of protections is a story that's very easy to tell. And it's very easy to tell to a lawmaker. It might even make a lot of sense to someone who owns um, a, a, a small or big business. So, so trying to think of the argument of why, in a nice, vivid way to illustrate to such a person why this thing that seems superficially helpful is actually counterproductive, and in a compelling way, so that you would want to avoid this problem. Uh, seems like a, you know an important thing to do. So let me try to come at it from the from the other end. Yeah, and when you do that, can you articulate like what the business owner is thinking naively? Is yes, it, yeah, that's yeah, exactly yeah. the way Great. how I want to phrase it. Great. So so I think if you if you st- start as your baseline, which I think is a pretty easy baseline to defend, that trade secret protection is a is a form of is a legal rule that makes a lot of sense, and we'd all be worse off if it didn't exist. Um, if you couldn't do anything to protect 
really particular information that you generate in your business, a formula, a particular technique, right? Customer lists. A customer list that's hard to, to develop over yeah. many years, not an easy one. That's probably too trivial. But, but um, so trade secret law is a really good thing. If we didn't have it, no one would want to be no one would want to have employees and that will keep businesses less productive than uh, than optimal. So trade secret law seems like a really good idea. Uh, okay, well, once you grant that, it seems to me that non-competes seem like a good idea as the next logical step on the following basis. And this is, this is not original to me. I think this is in the Landis and Posner economic structure of IP book, among other places, right? Uh, non-competes are simply a low-cost way to engage in trade secret non-disclosure agreements, right? It's cheaper for me, the employer. I don't need to identify whether you're misappropriating from me after you leave. I just need to identify whether you started working for a competitor. It's like, That's it's easier like, to yeah. do. It's cheaper, right? It's like Henry Smith's justification for these broad exclusion rules. Yeah, and, right, and, and, the, and you can even yeah. tell the employee, look, it's cheaper for you too. Because now you and I don't need to have complex conversations about what's considered a protectable secret and what's not. You don't have to keep track in your mind about which of my secrets from work are the things I can't say, which are the things are my know-how that I can say. It's just cheaper for everybody, right? So it seems like kind of tempting. Like, oh, there's this much lower cost way to do trade secret protection. Cheaper for me, the employer. Cheaper for you, the employee. Why not, right? So, I mean, it's, it seems kind of reasonable. Um, same for the invention agreement at work, right? Well, look, if, if we do this thing where it's only stuff you do while you're here at work, well, now if we really take that seriously, now we're going to have to spend a lot of effort separating the things you thought of while you were here and the things you thought of while you were at home. And what a pain in the ass that is. So okay. let's just do a low cost, easy to think. It's everything. You'll be like that guy in Texas that uh, that Orly cites in the article who came up with an idea while he was working for the company of the kind of – and he basically came to the company the next day and said, hey, I've got an idea. Do you want to be partners on this? <laughs> and the company's thinking, I thought we already were partners. <laughs> <laughs> right, right. right? And it, now, now it, I mean, one very um, – one, one um, I think, uh, sort of – unhelpful, maybe unhelpful, maybe very helpful, but maybe a little unhelpful. Um, the natural terminus of all of the arguments I just made is actually chattel slavery, right? Because the cheapest way to not have to have any of these conversations is for one person to own the entirety of another person. Then you don't have to worry about your future work. You don't have to worry about your future ideas. You don't have to. So this, this is the theory, Kosa's theory of the firm taken to its extreme. <laughs> right. Well, the, you know what the question, why aren't there just, why isn't there only one firm or why are there any at all? Yeah, right. Yeah, yeah. Um, you get to these two extremes, but, but, my, right. but, but so, I do. Th and, so, and another, another uh, cheap way is to do what we've been now doing with uh, the, the Elena Cove case that I describe in the, um, in the article of expanding economic espionage to the uh, definition of anything that an employee emails themselves, they might not only be, you know, involved in civil litigation, but they'll be imprisoned for eight years. So, you know, how <laughs> terrifying is that? This is the of guy who course, worked for Goldman yeah, Sachs and right. emailed himself some source code. And, right. Uh, right. Yeah. So, so he's, he's source code that he was working on. And, you know, it's, again, there's never a denial in the article that, 
we need intellectual property. We need some trade secret law. It's, I know. it's just, you know, how much are we enforcing? What are, what are the trade-offs here? Um, with any regulatory mechanism, you know, if you want to get complete compliance, you can create a lot of different things that, you know, scare the shit out of people. And, and then they just, uh, you know, it, but that's, that's just not what we do in our society. And we understand that there are costs and benefits to any of these regimes. So, so really like the message in, in the book, I, the, the subtitle is why we should learn to love leaks, raids and free riding. So, you know, of course, you know, absolute free riding is not something that we want in our society, but we also understand that in any economic theory, we have positive externalities and negative externalities. We don't try to internalize all the benefits of all our production. That's just not how economic, you know, markets work. Well, and the very idea of an externality, I mean, Coase is also famous for suggesting there's no such thing, right? That, that the, the very idea of an externality depends on a certain kind of baseline about baseline, thinking about baseline entitlements. And I was, one, one thing I was thinking about here is just that, um, you know, if you get rid of some of your kind of default thinking about who should own what and how, what can be assigned in contract in which way and what, who can assign rights to things and just think about the way companies work now there, it seems to me, in addition to the spillover idea that, you know, if you've got a bunch of companies all working in say vaguely in technology in one area, they're going to have lunch together and be friends and ideas are going to get shared and you have spillovers of one company's knowledge to another company. And that is efficient or at least leads to greater innovation by the whole. So the kind of the whole is, is more than the sum of its parts because you have stuff spilling over. Right. Um, but another idea is it's, you know, co- uh, employees who in, in quote unquote hobby time come up with new ideas and then take them to other companies and, and other companies, even through like corporate, corporate espionage, learning things from like that act of destruction is kind of creative destruction because what you're destroying is the monopoly over knowledge that other companies have. And so maybe there's a certain amount of efficient illegality or efficient espionage between companies if you want to give it the worst possible term, right? Right. That, yeah. 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 Keep, I mean, if you wanted to their, find yeah. every every leak as as espionage, you know, every use of your you know whatever is in your mind and whatever your experience and and uh, you know long term learning has been as uh, every every usage of that as espionage, then I definitely there, there is a degree of uh, efficient. Yeah, the, the simplest so way to say this, though, the simplest way to say this is there's uh, some value. I want at some point to get back to the thing I tried to do earlier, which we didn't do. All right, let me. All right, so I won't derail you anymore. Other than to say just this bumper the sticker. Empirical, the empirical insights. Uh, well, no, I was just going to say, the, yeah. the, just to put it on a bumper sticker, there is a value in, on a regular basis, a firm's intellectual assets being reduced to zero in value. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, so if, if I have some intellectual assets, some, some invention, some stuff in the lab and everybody learns what those things are, my, the, the marginal value of knowing that stuff is now zero because everybody knows it. And the point is that there is some value to destroying the value of a firm's intellectual achievements from time to time. Uh, oh, and okay, yeah, Sch- Schumpeter said that early on, right? The create, what you were talking about, the creative, uh, uh, constructive deconstruct uh, destruction. Yeah, or early every, yeah. everybody has said what I've said early on, <laughs> <laughs> and you can think right. of it as you know a snake, a snake shedding its skin. You, you grow out of a skin. You, yeah. The, so, but so here's what okay, I wanted ahead. to get back to was this. So my my little story about how it it seems like a non radical thing to do to go from trade secret to non compete as just an, a way to economize on the enforcement of trade secret. 
which everyone agrees is a good thing, yeah. right? So, um, so what's the what's the argument for that employer who's talking to that to their lawyer? Should I have these non compete clauses or not? They seem right. like like they seem like a cheap way to do it. My you know my sister was telling me the other day it works in her business. Maybe it would work in mine. You know, is is a good counter argument? Look, you may think you're lowering your costs. But when everyone starts doing that, you're actually raising your costs. It's the costs of new employees who are good at what they do. I think Orly's got a paper for you on that very point. Is that right, Orly? Well, yeah, well, I have. Uh, so, so there's several aspects of this. And, and so I think that it's right to think about it from uh, the business owner perspective uh, and, and then also from a policy perspective. Uh, it's it's. There's there's a whole game theory, you know, kind of prisoner's dilemma with, you know, using as many tools as you can and in, in preventing your employees from moving to a competitor when everybody can kind of go into that arms race. Uh, so so what we're seeing is the actual rise and, you know, even companies like Jimmy John's, uh, whatever, the, the sandwich maker that recently right. was exposed in signing their employees on non-competes. It's, it's easy. It's the impulse that, that you describe, you know, why, why not? You know, we've already trained this employee for two weeks. Why, why should I, you know, <laughs> let them go? Or, or I might let them go. Of course, there's an asymmetry here. There's, there's high turnover and there's no job security, but, but I don't want them to have, you know, external opportunities. It's an, it's we understand that kind of uh, thinking. There are lots of reasons. There are lots of good reasons to uh, tell the business owner himself or herself that that thinking is is not uh, always the the smartest for you know for your company. Even when you're just looking from your own perspective, then there's that that other leap of you know thinking about. Uh, what's what's better in the long run when in a region? So, but but let me just say a few things about the the business owner themselves. So, um, I've been now kind of talking to a lot of different audiences uh, in in relation to the book, and I was just so I was just up at Intel in Santa Clara um, talking to them about trade secrets and non competes and. And they came up to me and said, you know, in, in our different offices, we, of course, can, could use non-competes. In California, we can't, but we could use them in other places. But what we've learned is that the people that we actually want to get, they don't want to sign those non-competes. And, and so we've done away with them. And um, we understand, or I don't know if they told me the whole, that whole, like, uh, insightful, uh, intuition, but, but it's, I'll, I'll just kind of put it together as though they understood all these elements. They also, uh, can understand that the, the way to retain people is not by the fear of, you know, you don't have any uh, outside options. Uh, that's actually not, you know, it's, there's a, an adverse selection effect here that first of all, the people who, will join you are probably what Akhilarov will call the lemons, you know, people who um, think that they they anyway won't be, their, their talent won't be the subject to a tournament, they won't be fought over. Um, and and while they're working for you, you know, if they don't think that they're building their pro- portfolio and thinking about their entire career, the, I, I have experimental studies, behavioral studies that show that their motivation uh, is depressed. They they just um, see themselves in a much narrower world in terms of their career trajectory. Um, so 
it's it's really important to remember that even though it's a it's a resource that we're trying to keep as a business owner, it's a human resource. They're you know they're the the their productive energies or performance. Um, is, is impacted by the kind of environment you set up. And so it's much smarter to use a, a series of carrots rather than sticks in order to motivate retention. And, and to, so, so I think that the smartest business leaders, at least in certain industries where really they, they see the, you know, the, the, their value of, of, of having the, these best employees that, that are uh, very creative and energetic, um, they, they use not non-competes, but other kinds of ways to, to keep employees. Um, having said all that, you know, it's, it's very difficult, as I said, to, you know, not, not recognize that at a given moment when your best employee is now, uh, uh, getting an outside offer and, and the, they're, they're also offered a raise in that, that other place, it's just easier to say, no, you just can't do it. Uh, if there's no denial that there's also a loss. You know, the, the whole um, question that I'm opening up here is, is you know, what are those trade-offs between the loss, the, the immediate loss of, you know, your best person going to a competitor? Yes, there, you know, there's going to be a loss for that company. But um, over the long run, what are the, the potential gains? Uh, and for- I guess the way to secure that is to say, you know, to prevent a race to the bottom, we kind of have to lash ourselves to a higher equilibrium. So, you know, California's statute that says you just can't have these sorts of agreements or we won't. And if you do, we won't enforce them. Like, that's good because it prevents people from in that weak moment of weakness, siding with their short term interest instead of their long term interest. Right. And that's why it's 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 clear that um, given everything that we know now, and, and I never got to really talk uh, a lot about the empirical studies, but there's that's what's great, that there's a lot of empirical studies that just look at these uh, variations and show that the the regions gain tremendously in terms of startup rates, patenting rates, uh, economic growth, uh, higher salaries, everybody, you know, more jobs created in regions that are lower enforcement. Um, there's, there's here a policy role of saying, you know, even though there's the temptation to to get to the the highest uh, forms of of locking in whoever you want to to keep with you know using legal strategies, we want to come back to the as you said the the better uh, equilibrium the you know that if we just let it be all market driven, we're going to be at the suboptimal equilibrium. Now, there is a door number three. Oh, door number one is, you know, you do this covenant not to compete. And, and that maybe is bad for everybody. Door number two uh, is uh, you, d- you don't do it, right? And you're just subject to market forces and you have to pay employees basically what they're worth in the market. Door number three. Knowing that some people will try to use those clauses. Of course, of course. And right. you're going to lose some, you know, you're right. going to have that kind of, you're going to have these spillovers you so don't want. I think you've done about a door number four. Door number three is California. What's door number four? Uh, that's where I say, um, why don't I go to my competitors and like, we'll just all agree that we won't, um, we won't hire you. And then, then I don't have to worry about that's you. California. And, and, that's exactly. California. That's California. That's Employees don't know that they're under a covenant not to compete. And so right. you don't have any of the effects that Orly identified. Was it Alma Mir that you were writing this piece with it? Do I have that right? 
Oh, I mean, yeah, he's a, a behavioral economist at UCSD. Yes, yeah, so you don't have any of the bad effects that they identified in that paper about being, <laughs> you know, uh, reduced motivation because of <laughs> because they don't even know they're come uh, not compete. And and right. indeed, they're just and, not getting the calls from headhunters. They're just right? not yeah. getting the calls. Right. Nobody because wants Steve them. Jobs runs so, the universe exactly. So and, and so you've talked about this, and uh, you you were quoting the New York Times just the other day about this, uh, Orly. Do you want to say anything about the this approach generally, and in, in this issue in particular? Yeah, I call them uh, non-competes on steroids or meta non-competes that really uh, just do away with agreeing about anything with the individual employees. Um, and they, this, so this is now being revealed that um, from 2005 to 2010, uh, some of the most esteemed companies in Silicon Valley just agreed um, all the way from the top, Steve Jobs and Eric Schmidt uh, at Google and, and some of these others, Intuit and Pixar um, and Adobe, they all agreed to just not recruit each other's employees. Mm. Um, and so um, what has been uh, really fascinating uh, is that it's the first time that the federal antitrust division um, has looked at this from the perspective of a violation uh, of an antitrust violation under the Sherman Act, uh, said it's a per se violation. It's it's a talent cartel, just like you would think about a product cartel. You know, there, it's, it's, it's wage fixing um, that's analogous to price fixing in, in consumer markets. Um, yeah, because and, it's set, it, they're, they're, they're oligopsonizing the wage market. Right. They're, they're, right. they're in, it's not, uh, oligopoly because they're not selling the thing. It's what they're buying. And by, right. by oligopsonizing it, they're suppressing it. Right. And, and this, Monsters. It's, it's, it's helpful to, <laughs> seriously, well, it's so, it makes me so angry. It, it, it is, it, it, I think the victims are so much more identifiable than just price fixing where it's the, the harms of that oligopoly are spread over the whole consumer class. Here it's like your own employees, you know, that you're kind of, in a way, stabbing in the back. And I, I know they don't think of it that way. I know there's all kinds of cognitive disassociation that went, that went along with this, but Orly, was there a single, I mean, it seems like the more they dig into this, the, the more that big company, was there a single big company in the Valley that d- was not engaged in this practice? Yeah, uh, yeah, yeah. So there are, so, so uh, first of all, the, the, the driving force is clearly, was clearly Steve Jobs. And I think that um, this is unfortunate um, when, when you start looking at, um, kind of Steve Jobs embodying a lot of these questions uh, about not just about human capital, but about innovation, about um, intellectual property, patent law, antitrust law, where you really see Steve Jobs uh, in the 70s as a very different personality than, you know, toward the end of his life. Um, And in in some ways it answers uh, what you were asking before of, you know, how do you convince a company um, that it's, you know, doing away with some of not, you know, not everything that you can do legally, you know, all kinds of threats that you could use and some of it illegally you should do uh, for, for the, the good of the company and the greater good of a region. And so there's, there's something lost there where uh, we talked about the ethos of Silicon Valley early on, where there was an understanding that you're building something and, and, and you have all these statements by Steve Jobs saying, you know, I steal all the great ideas and, and it's all about great, you know, getting to the best product and putting out there the, you know, the, the most exciting innovation. And there's something lost over time where, uh, possibly, you know, the company becomes too big. There's, uh, there's, there's egos. There's, there's something that really, uh, shifts 
in uh, the focus. There's you know reports now on uh, how the spending, the actual spending, has shifted so dramatically from R and D to litigation, to you know patenting everything and to yeah. to defending everything, and and that's that's a real uh, loss to to um, our you know to our. Uh, project of human progress, progress in arts and sciences, uh, human development, and, and, and these exciting companies that are so beloved. Uh, we, we see something that's, that's, that was there and maybe is, is not there uh, so much. And so it might be even like a life cycle of, of companies, uh, maybe mm-hmm. again, constructive destruction. But but the, there are also companies. Um, so uh, there's, a, of course, a, a class action uh going on right now it, it may have settled today or yesterday um with all of these uh 60, engineers and there's actually more uh employees that were implicated um that were under these do not touch do not hire uh gentlemen's agreements and um we've because of this class action we've seen uh through discovery a lot of evidence a lot of embarrassing emails by these uh industry leaders that have colluded. But we also have on on record people like Sheryl Sandberg at Facebook saying, I was approached to be part of this uh, cartel. And I said, you know, you know what, I want to be the sexiest company on the mm-hmm. block. And yeah. I want to be able to recruit, you know, uh, whoever I want. And I want people to leave me when they're unhappy. And it's really, <laughs> uh, I think, telling because it, it used to be Google that was the the c- company that everybody wanted to to work for, and then and then you have evidence of you know Facebook coming in and um, taking you know a lot of these Google employees and 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 the best of them, um, and and so I think it's a moment in in the, in the cycle of of uh, companies where they predict you know their losses versus their gains in having these kinds of agreements there's again never a denial that they can gain from these kinds of collusions if if nobody's moving you know well slavery was kind of profitable right for <laughs> for uh, uh a lot of people so so you know that's you know if you take that to the extreme as you said before with child labor and you know all kinds of uh these uh exploitations you of course, you can see the economic interests there, uh, but that's not the kind of society that we want to create. Well, maybe, maybe this will bring us back around to where we started to kind of thinking about norms and cultural attitudes towards employment. But, you know, and I think, and this is, I'm kind of just speculating here about Steve Jobs, but I, I really do think he wanted to form the best rock band in the world, you know, and, uh, and, 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 you know, in, in rock bands, you don't, um, you know, the Beatles would not be the Beatles if, Every other day, like, you know, Led Zeppelin was calling George Harrison to try to get him to join the band, right? I mean, it's like, I, I, you know, I can't resist. I need to interrupt you already. Here's, here's what's so crazy about what you just said. You said it wouldn't be the best band if Led Zeppelin is calling every other day. Here's what the better uh, observation is. What matters is how long it takes George to say no thanks and hang up. It's, yeah. it's not about whether Led Zeppelin is calling. It's about how how much he entertains the idea of leaving. Well, that's what I was saying. And what you want to create is the environment where he's like, dude, stop, you know, Robert, stop calling me. I'm never saying yes to you and and goodbye. Right. But that's why I think it's about norms. Right. So, uh, 
I, and there's a mismatch between, you know, you want to create this band where everybody in it thinks that they're doing the best work of their lives, right? And this is my, what I'm doing here is more important than anything else. And that was, you know, Steve Jobs, you know, almost monomaniacal focus on making, you know, we're all focused on making the same dent in the universe, right? And, and so for him, this is like a, I really do think it's like the Beatles, right? We are the Beatles of technology. And, and so keeping that band together is like the most important. And, and look, I think it's just a category error. Would you right? realize what you're doing is putting gold leaf on the bars of the cage? Okay. Oh, right. that, that's not a great technique. To be clear, I'm not defending it. What well, I'm saying is that there's a uh, – with in rock bands, it does – you know, they there are people who go back and forth, right? But it seems like norms about what it means to stay in a band and like how, poaching and all of that – that seem it is under the surface about what is acceptable in terms of calling up a competitor's employees and and trying to get them to come over. And so I say this links up with what we talked about at the beginning because I'm wondering in Korea and then Japan and others and and uh, you know beyond stereotype um, wh- whether there is a different kind of duty of loyalty that would not only stop the employee from taking that call that would make them do what you just said, Joe, which is put down the phone very fast, but also stop a competitor from calling employees and. And so the law is just one input into this mm, problem, mm-hmm. right, in terms of giving power to employees or power to employers. And law and culture together are what create that set point between – that set point which divides the power of the employer and the power of the employee, um, which controls wages and all kinds of other aspects yeah. uh, of the job. And like I think you know, for Steve Jobs, he just didn't see any distinction. It's like we're all part of this band together. And I'm, of course, the leader of the band. But you know, we're going to make the greatest thing ever and we can't do that if we don't act like a – you know, if we don't act like a band, you know, um, right. I've never a- thought every about this other, every other this norm be, be damned, right? Yeah. The man was engaged in a decades orgy of antitrust violations. <laughs> it is a sad thing that the last, yeah. you know, eight or nine years of his life, he was dreaming up every day a new way to violate the Sherman Act. That's a problem mm-hmm. in my book, mm-hmm. <laughs> especially when yeah. all of it comes out of the hide of consumers, your employees. It's not good. No, yeah, and, no, yeah. I mean, the, the, the big difference between your uh, description of the band members and, and employees is, is really kind of this idea of ownership, not property ownership, but just ownership over, you know, who the what the identity of, of this this group is. Um, you're so part of it. You're the face of it. Um, and you get, you know, uh, the attribution then the credit that you deserve in, in being that kind of front. And uh, Steve Jobs himself, of course, had that and, and he attributed a lot of innovation to himself that, that probably was not deserving. Um, and, and on the other hand, uh, you know, there, th- we have then, you know, the lower you go down the ranks, um, to, to expect these high degrees of loyalty without uh, hardly anything in return, just kind of a, a you know, a salary um, and, and a suppressed salary because you're suppressing outside offers. <laughs> That's just, there's, there's a, you know, a, a real problem there um, in terms of uh, mismatch of expectations. And you see that mismatch even in like fast food where you have like the manager of a fast food place who believes in like the mission of the organization has an inflated sense maybe even of the importance of the organization. And of course, minimum wage employees don't share this at all, right? And so I wonder if it's even a worse situation there, you know, where, where the employees have no desire for this to be their ultimate career. The manager has a sense of mission in life. I mean, that must be a difficult thing to manage. Maybe that's what's going on with Jimmy John's. I don't know. <laughs> Uh, you know, there's a real peril, too, for lawyers um, 
in all of this because, uh, my, you know, my my sense from the model rules of professional responsibility as a, as an important source on this is um, lawyers actually, as a matter of our professional self regulation, we can't effectively have these non compete agreements. That's right. So lawyers have have as a profession Californicated themselves behind Whoa. this. Whoa! <laughs> Californianized <laughs> themselves behind right. this wall of. Yeah. Uh, we can't be bound by non-competitions themselves. Right. But yeah. but but we but hey, we're certainly happy to advise all of you as our clients to have these non-compete agreements. There's something really hypocritical to me about like we as as practicing lawyers as a class don't feel the brunt of these agreements yeah. the way the people who work at their clients might feel them, which is seems kind of gross to me. Boy, we're we're in and up on this discussion with a big shot of Joe, and I love it. <laughs> I'm usually not this ornery, but this is this one's really getting my go. No, only about half the time. No, oh, come on, <laughs> Orly. We've kept you on longer than we we may have uh, uh, um, uh, told you we would, but it's been a fascinating discussion. Is there any? I don't. Is there anything else you wanted really to add fun. that you didn't get out? No, I think you know. There's a lot more to talk about, but this was uh, super fun, and and uh, yeah, this is why I wrote "Talent Wants to Be Free" because it really um, connected to so many different audiences, so many different bodies of law that uh, it uh, it the discussion continues. I mean, every day I'm I'm seeing other uh, new developments, and um, it's it's been fun. Yeah, well, this has been a great first. Orly Lobel episode on <laughs> oral arguments. So, uh, next time you're, especially There's next a time, series? You're, yeah. <laughs> next time you're in Athens, we're going to have you in the studio. Well, um, I want to come to Athens again. It was really fun to be uh, there last year. Tim Meyer is coming on the uh, to give a colloquium in two weeks. So I'm excited about that. Here I'm not excited Diego. at all because uh, that's not me. Tim is not me. I, I love Tim. He's a you know, friend of the show. He's been on the show before. He has. Um, but I don't see why he should get to go to San Diego and I shouldn't. San Diego is pretty nice right now. I don't even want to tell you. <laughs> <laughs> I, I, you know, I look out my office and, and they're walking in flip-flops, my student. Uh, oh, you know, I've got I've got a buddy out there who has a, uh, a job at a well-known um, kind of science type center. Whose office has you know big windows? Looks out at a pier and the beach and the rolling waves. Wow, what a uh -huh. jerk! What a jerk! You know what I'm saying? <laughs> oh, yeah. We keep it quiet. It's like uh, it's it's almost like oh, we we're embarrassed and we we keep it secret. Uh, what's going on out here? <laughs> I remember I was living in New Haven before I, I I accepted a job here, and I came back. I think I gave the job talk here. It was probably. November <laughs> and I came back to Gray New Haven and I kept saying it was like a joke. I said, Have you seen La Jolla? Have you been to San Diego? Do you know that this place exists? <laughs> yeah, San Diego uses that to suppress wages and otherwise uh, interfere with free labor markets. Like no one ever wants to leave. Right. Know? No, well yeah. that's it's actually true. Non monetary, you know, incentives are very effective. <laughs> Thanks a bunch, Orly. Good. Well, Appreciate thank you it. for having me. All right. We'll talk Thanks to you soon. Thanks so much. Bye. Bye. Should we record an epilogue, Joe? <laughs> no. You don't think so? No. That No. This is how we do it. We do follow-up after and we put it before. We got to keep shaking things up, though, or we get stale. That's we Okay. So we'll think about next week if we want to do a different format. Too late. This was it. <laughs>